Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Today, we are doing part two of a story we started in the second anniversary special. It has taken longer than I expected. I wanted to release this mid-June, actually, and then jump into politics in the 1820s and 1830s. But this one has been a bit of a whopper to put together. Still, you know I love a challenge. We are going to meet a notorious Victorian, a man called a master of disguise, a thief and ultimately a murderer. The remarkable Charles Peace, described by a woman he tormented as the very devil. If you haven't listened to part one yet, the anniversary special, please do that before listening to this one. Otherwise, you'll get a bit confused, I think. Before we get going, I want to say a thank you to the show's patrons. Ho-ho Toff Michel Gersick, Ho-ho Toff Michel Packham, and now Rob Coughlin, who is a long-time friend of the show and has moved himself up from the middle classes as a respectable governess into the ranks of the ho Toffs. Well done. I hope that it was by honourable marriage or some such, but if you had to slip Lord Palmerston a few hundred pounds and promise to support a railway bill, that's fine too. Our current respectable governesses are Geoffrey Rubinoff, Sean Walswick, host of the American History Podcast, and another long-time friend of the show, Erpso, and they are joined by our new respectable governess, Amy Coldwell. Our first lovable chimney sweeps have arrived. Josef Kupperman and JB Unicorn have both made their marks, and new patron, Ephemeral von Hinterland, has also made a pledge. Thank you all for your support. It is wonderful to see the ranks of Victorian society swelling with such fine, upstanding members. Also, I've been upgrading the website a bit. If you go to the site, there's a new drop-down under Episodes in the main menu bar. This drop-down gives you a way to listen to episodes by theme. So if you want to listen to all the Mount Tambora shows, for example, they are all in one place. The website has plenty of things on it, including maps and source material and transcripts. I've added the article about William Habron too, in the resources section under crime. Now, let's get on with the main show. Today, we indulge in a little Victorian drama. What we are going to cover was as notorious in its day as the O.J. Simpson trial became in the 1990s, but without the racial element. Before we get going, I'd just like to clarify a few terms for those unfamiliar with the law in England, especially our American listeners probably aren't used to our system. I'm not doing a deep dive, fun as that would be, just a quick once over so that some of the terms make more sense. The British legal system, like a lot of systems, splits into two areas, criminal and civil. That's fairly common around the world, often because the British set it up in various territories, or as a natural development out of European code Napoleonic laws and things like that. For criminal law, 
the lowest level of court is the magistrate. These deal with summary offences, but they are also the first stop for serious criminal offences, which they refer up to the Crown Court for full trial. So magistrates will see everything from petty crime to murderers coming through them, but only briefly. At the Crown Court in Victorian times, offences were tried in front of a judge and jury, with the suspect presumed innocent unless proved guilty. There was no duty to assist the police, just a law against actually obstructing them. The prosecution was referred to as the Crown, so you'd hear things like the case for the Crown or the Crown and Smith. Now, that and is actually written V.S. in the court judgments, but it's said and, not versus. The actual court structure in Victorian times was more complex than today, so we'll leave it at that for now. A suspect was entitled to remain silent, unlike in the modern United Kingdom. I might just digress there to say the current right to silence in the UK is slightly curtailed and the caution modern suspects are given is that you have the right to remain silent but it may harm your defence if you fail to mention something when questioned that you later rely on in court. However, in the Victorian era, the right was unqualified. A suspect could remain completely silent if they wished. The burden of proof was that the Crown had to show the jury sufficient evidence such that they were sure the defendant was guilty beyond all reasonable doubt. People were entitled to use whatever name they wanted in addition to their legal names, so having an alias was quite common and normal. Put it this way, Jim Broadfoot was a normal name, but Riccardo Giovanni was a much better name to use to sell Italian operetta sheet music to the gentry. It was what you did with the alias that counted. As long as it was not criminal or fraudulent, you could call yourself what you liked, although your legal name remained unchanged. There were lots of cases that had been heard by senior courts setting out what beyond reasonable doubt or proved meant, and junior courts were expected to follow these precedents unless a novel situation arose. And remember, reasonable means reasonable, not any strange excuse you can come up with that might tiny possibility of the merest hint through a telescope of some kind of doubt. The accused was entitled to speak in their own defence or hire legal representation. Solicitors acted as the general legal practitioner and they instructed the barrister, who was essentially the trial lawyer and the only one entitled to address the court. A senior barrister became a Queen's counsel if they were good enough and were given the letters QC after their name. This was, and still is, referred to as taking silk and it is a sign that someone is exceptionally good in the profession. I'm sure it won't come as a huge surprise to learn that in the Victorian period lawyers were men. Still, being a barrister was seen as an attractive prospect 
for the most talented members of society. It could be, it could be, cutthroat and a way for the ambitious to become judges or members of parliament. Barristers could only advance by getting clients, and this came from a reputation of winning cases. So this was an area of middle-class mobility, far more than it was an aristocratic pursuit. But the profession was still developing throughout the 19th century. Even speaking for a defendant in court was a fairly recent innovation, in criminal matters at least, for the very best barristers. The route to the House of Lords was available, and perhaps the heights of the Lord Chancellorship, since the judges could sit as law lords in the legislature. So that made the Lord Chancellorship one of the most powerful offices of state and highly coveted. The upshot of this was that Victorian courts attracted a lot of considerable talent. Ultimately, though, all systems come down to people. The Victorian criminal justice system saw thousands of people coming through it. First-timers, hardened criminals, people in the wrong place at the wrong time, innocent men like William Habron, guilty serial killers like Amelia Dyer. Of course, when most people think of Victorian criminals, they automatically think of Jack the Ripper. But most of the work of the criminal justice system was low-level petty crime, often caused by drink or poverty. Sometimes, a dash of aristocratic fraud added some scandal. But there were many, many famous criminals. Of them all, it was Charles Peace who might have actually claimed to be among the best known. He was born in 1832, and he would become notorious with his own waxwork in Madame Tussauds. He was born in Sheffield, the youngest of four children. His parents were poor, but working. At the age of 14, he was working in a mill when a piece of burning hot iron entered his leg in an industrial accident. His leg never fully healed, and he lost his job. It took him months to recover. That could well have been a turning point in his life. Any chance of staying in a regular manual labour job was lost. He turned to petty burglary and was soon in prison. He was only five foot three and had the talent of changing his facial features convincingly. There are quite a few photos of him and even without prosthetics or makeup, he was able to look astonishingly different. There are sources that hint he even took to slightly dyeing his skin with walnut oil to change the skin tone. Sort of like watching Christian Bale change roles with just some mannerisms and a change of hairstyle to become completely unrecognisable. Peace's life continued on that pattern. He married, but went to prison for burglary. In between stints in prison, he acquired a violin with one string but became a talented, self-taught violinist on it, nicknamed the modern Paganini, hence Arthur Conan Doyle's joke in the Sherlock Holmes novel. I've seen a photo of one of his surviving violins, by the way, made in 1820, 
and still with only one string. He was mainly a burglar, which put him higher up the ladder of Victorian crime than most, although at greater risk, since crimes against property were punished heavily. Sometime between 1854 and 1859, he had married Hannah Ward and attempted to go straight for a short period. In August 1859, he was surprised while going to collect hidden loot from a burglary the previous night. The brave officer who caught him was to find out how dangerous peace could be when cornered. The criminal nearly gunned down the constable, seriously wounding him. Peace was captured and sentenced to six years in prison. On release, in 1864, he was soon back to his life of crime. He moved to Manchester to vary his hunting ground. Unfortunately for him, whilst drunk on whiskey, he was caught mid-burglary and sentenced to eight years in prison. Peace clearly didn't like prison and made an escape attempt from Wakefield Prison. He had managed to get himself on to the repair crew and sneaked a ladder into his prison cell. I know, I know, but he actually managed to do that somehow. He climbed the ladder and used a saw he had made out of an old tin can and cut a hole in the roof. Unluckily for him, a guard came in unexpectedly and surprised him. So he knocked the guard out and was off, out over the roof and along the top of the prison wall. His bad luck continued as a loose house brick in the wall caused him to fall back into the prison. So near to escape, but so far, he ducked into the prison governor's house, changed clothes, and waited for an opportunity to escape. It didn't come. He was soon back in custody, and shipped around other prisons. There were rumours he was involved in leading a mutiny at Chatham Prison, sparking riots. He was even sent to Gibraltar for a time. Curiously, one of his enemies in prison in Gibraltar was found dead after a surprise fall. It's hard to find any real evidence that Peace did it. Peace attracted a lot of myths and anecdotes when he became famous. He was eventually released and ready for more crime, but actually did some legitimate work for a while as well. He would soon cross paths with Constable Cock and commit his first verified murder, as we learned in the previous episode. Unluckily for everyone, it would not be Peace's last murder. In 1875, Peace moved to a nicer suburb in Sheffield, where he met Arthur Dyson and his Irish-born American citizen wife, Mrs. Catherine Dyson. Peace became obsessed with her. According to him, she was his lover, but became tired of him, so tried to abandon him. According to her, he was basically a vicious stalker and utterly evil. The Dysons moved across Sheffield at one point to get away from him. On the day she moved into her new house, Catherine Dyson found peace outside, grinning evilly at her. He waited for her outside one night as she went to the outdoor privy in her garden. 
we would probably recognise this as an obsessive stalker today. Such behaviour wasn't accepted in Victorian times either, especially with the strict social rules about who could talk to whom and when. When Catherine came out, he was there, revolver in hand. Mr Dyson heard the noise and came out to investigate. Peace turned and fired his habitual warning shot as he tried to escape. Mr Dyson kept moving towards him. Peace then fired again, hitting Mr Dyson in the head. It was a fatal shot, as Mr Dyson died two hours later. But there was a witness to the crime. Peace was now a wanted man. He managed to run, climb a wall and made it to a train. He bought a ticket for Beverly Station got off early to confuse pursuit. He made it to a railway station yard and hid out till morning. He caught an early train to Hull and turned up at his wife's restaurant looking for a place to lay low. She took him in and fed him. Two detectives arrived and began to search the premises. His wife denied having seen him and Peace managed to climb up onto the roof to hide behind the chimney stack. He wasn't found. This must have set his heart racing and the police were putting serious heat on the street for him. There was a hundred pound reward and that kind of money always gets people talking. Peace was worried but he had plans. He shaved his beard, dyed his hair and got a pair of glasses and practiced his talent of facial contortion to change his facial shape. Of course, there was one other thing he needed to do to disguise himself. Here's the police description on the wanted notice. Quote, Charles Peace, wanted for murder on the night of the 29th. He is thin and slightly built, 55 to 60 years of age, 5 feet 4 inches or 5 feet high, grey, nearly white hair, beard and whiskers. He lacks the use of three fingers of left hand, walks with his legs rather wide apart, speaks somewhat peculiarly as though his tongue were too large for his mouth and is a great boaster. He is a picture frame maker. He occasionally cleans and repairs clocks and watches and sometimes deals in olographs, engravings and pictures. He has seen penal servitude for burglary in Manchester He has lived in Manchester, Salford and Liverpool and Hull. End quote. Did you spot it? The problem with his left hand. He had, according to some sources, accidentally blown one of his own fingers off. That's not easy to hide. The age description was later corrected to 46. All in all, it is not the best description to work from, but enough to force him to change his appearance. He also created a false arm and wore it over the real one. Then he could pretend he had lost his real arm. So he clearly wasn't the man in the description. He moved around the country for a while before meeting Susan Gray. He fell in love, but she was initially reluctant. So he pulled his revolver on her and threatened to shoot her. She didn't become his lover. Strangely, she seemed thrilled by this excitement and they moved into lodgings 
at a police sergeant's house, because Peace was nothing if not insanely self-confident. He had more rewards posted for his arrest and some narrow escapes from the police. One notable occasion was when the police came to search in his room and found him and Susan naked in bed together under assumed names of Mrs Bailey and John Ward. Peace pretended to be outraged and demanded the officers wait downstairs so he could dress and not be shamed by talking to them naked in front of his wife. They kindly obliged in a delightful show of good manners. Peace then put on a delightful show of his climbing abilities and was out of the window and up across the rooftops. He sent Susan a note saying to join him later and they headed for London together as the north of England was becoming a bit too risky. London was a good time for peace at first, because at this point any pretense of common sense has long since left our story, and we are in the realm of events that if we saw them on screen, we would call unrealistic bullshit. He set himself up with a new identity as a music teacher and inventor called Mr. Thompson. His lover, Susan, was Mrs. Thompson. I'm not sure what his long-suffering wife Hannah thought about that, but the two women didn't exactly get along. No surprises to anyone listening there, I'm sure. He even got himself some patents for his inventions. He also hatched a scheme for financing the refloating of sunken wrecks based on his patents, and managed to get a respectable business partner, Mr. Bryon, who remained ignorant of his new friend and partner's background. They managed to get interviews with interested MPs. Peace and Susan were pretty successful con artists, and they took a nice house in Greenwich, which Peace paid for by carrying on his main trade of burglary. To the outside world, he was a pillar of respectability. He was renowned for his excellent taste and generous banquets. He rented both sides of the terrace house. One side was for his lover Susan, the other side was for his wife Hannah and his daughter. This is a level of chutzpah that I can quite believe. On his criminal jobs, he would take a violin case stuffed with highly specialist tools, a life preserver, as well as a ladder and the ever-present revolver. His nighttime jaunts took him as far as Southampton on the south coast, as well as various parts of South London. When he was later caught, workmen discovered, buried nearby, a chest of actual treasure, including silver plate, gold watches, vases, and valuable paintings. Police were shocked by the sudden, massive spike in burglaries, and wondered what could possibly be the cause. Perhaps a new criminal gang, they pondered. Peace particularly stuck to the rich Blackheath area, so police thought they were hunting a local burglar, or group of burglars. They had no idea, at this stage, that the wanted murderer from the north was their suspect. Even when events seemed on the police's side, Peace seemed blessed. He physically bumped into a police officer who used to work in Yorkshire. The officer recognised Peace and gave chase. Up the street 
and the steps of Hobo and Viaduct, they raced. As they reached the top, the officer grabbed at Peace, who slipped out of his grasp and was somehow gone into the crowd. By this point, Peace's opinion of the police had hit rock bottom, but you can see why. Finally, though, Peace's luck ran out. He was seen by candlelight mid-burglary. Constable Robinson and his colleague rung a bell at the front of a house to alert the household, or at least make inquiries about why someone was moving around with a candle in the early hours of the morning. Robinson covered the back of the property and saw Peace making a run for it. He gave chase. Peace spun round and yelled, Keep back or I'll shoot you. Robinson wasn't giving up, so Peace fired three shots at the officer's head. Luckily they missed, and Robinson closed on his man. Peace fired again but missed. Robinson reached Peace and punched him hard in the face. Peace was enraged and yelled, I'll settle you this time. He fired what was intended to be a killing shot at close range, but Robinson managed to get his arm in the way. The two men struggled, as Robinson was determined to bring Peace in, despite being badly wounded. He managed to get hold of the revolver and pistol-whipped Peace hard. By now, two other officers arrived, and Peace was taken. He was soon put on trial for the attempted murder of the officer. There was a lot of difficulty identifying who the suspect was, and at first they believed he was a man called John Ward, as Peace was trying to pass himself off as a senile old man. In the run-up to the trial, he had made a fatal mistake. He wrote to his business partner using his alias John Ward. The police soon talked to Mr. Bryan, who went to see this John Ward. He identified Peace as the man he knew as Mr. Thompson, the music dealer and inventor, which inevitably led the police back to Susan. She was happy to spill her guts rather than face charges, including handling stolen goods, or worse. Remember, someone always talks. The trial was almost a foregone conclusion. Despite Peace's claims, he was only trying to frighten the officer. His barrister, Mr Montague Williams, did his best in a difficult case, but Peace was found guilty of attempted murder and burglary. It only took the jury four minutes. The authorities weren't going to let things drop there. They wanted the murder charge. An officer was sent down from the north and he identified Peace in the prison yard as the man wanted for the murder of Mr Dyson. Now convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to life in prison, Peace was then to be sent for a second trial, this time a murder. He must have known it would lead to his inevitable hanging. As a famous hardened criminal, he could expect no mercy. He was told on the evening of the 16th of January, 1879, that he would face a hearing in Sheffield before a magistrate the next morning to see if there was sufficient evidence to bring charges, which meant travelling up to Sheffield from London. He got a new barrister on the morning of the 17th of January, 1879, the dashing and handsome Mr William Clegg who was a barrister and an international England footballer, because, as you know, the Victorians really liked to keep their options open. 
Clegg immediately kicked off for his client, accusing the court of failing to give sufficient notice to prepare a defence and demanding a delay. When refused, he managed to get any reference to any crimes committed after the previous verdict struck out of bounds since they were irrelevant and would prejudice a future jury. Witnesses were called and a further hearing was scheduled the following week. When the next court date arrived, peace was sent again on the early train from London to Sheffield. The police were taking no chances. He was sent under guard with two officers. They wouldn't leave his side. He was kept in a locked carriage. To prevent the inevitable request to use the toilet and a subsequent escape attempt, the police provided him a set of bags to piss in. He would have to go in front of the officers in the locked carriage, which he duly did. The police opened the window to throw the bag out, and to their astonishment, Peace made an athletic standing leap worthy of an Olympian that took him out of the narrow window of the speeding train in a final do-or-die attempt at freedom. One officer managed to grab Peace's left foot, leaving Peace suspended upside down from the speeding train. Imagine how that would have felt, desperate to escape, upside down with the roar of the train, the buffeting of the wind, the choking of the smoke from the steam engine. Peace clung on to the passenger step, hanging upside down and frantically kicking at the officer. His shoe came loose and he was free. The officers were furious and probably scared of the trouble they would be in. The train was stopped a mile further down the track. They must have been bundles of nerves. Had the master of disguise pulled off another escape? Well, if this was just a story, then we would have to say, of course, because then we could have an epic escape followed by a showdown, perhaps with the injured Constable Robinson coming back to get the job done. Real history doesn't quite work like that. Physics had caught up to peace. The real-life result of jumping headfirst from a speeding train is actually serious injuries. He was found unconscious in the freezing snow with a serious head wound lying by the side of the track. He was rearrested, and this time he would be taken for trial. Due to the public excitement and the risk of escapes, the pre-trial committal hearing was actually held in a cold corridor of the town hall. Peace repeatedly interrupted proceedings, begging for blankets from the cold, complaining about his serious head wound, accusing people of lying, and claiming he was being persecuted. Peace was lucky to get an extremely talented barrister, Mr Lockwood. Lockwood pitched into the main witness, Catherine Dyson, the only eyewitness to the murder itself. He basically put it to her that far from being stalked, she had had a relationship with Peace, proved by a whole stack of letters that contained things you didn't say to casual acquaintances, especially in Victorian times, let alone a man you refused to talk to. One damning phrase he highlighted was, quote, If you have a note for me, send it now while he is out. 
but you must not venture, for he is watching, and you cannot be too careful. I hope your foot is better. I went to Sheffield yesterday, but I could not see you anywhere. Were you out? Love to Jane. End quote. Mrs. Dyson denied that she'd written to Peace, and she especially denied writing that note, or that she knew that Peace had injured his foot. Previous samples of her handwriting were produced. The handwriting matched, but she still denied it. She also denied she had written passages about him giving her a ring, although she admitted she had been given a ring by him and had worn it. By the end, her credibility as a witness was shot to pieces. It seems likely, based on the evidence and testimony, that they had had an affair of some kind, but even so, that wouldn't exactly help. She could certainly have had an affair and called it off, only to find peace wasn't a man who knew how to move on. Stalking an ex seems in keeping with his character. Besides, affair or not, peace had gone armed to the Dyson's garden and had shot Mr. Dyson in the head. The key was if Clegg could somehow show there was a struggle. If Clegg could show there was an affair, that Catherine Dyson, the only witness, was a liar, and that Peace had foolishly pulled the gun on an angry husband, and it had gone off accidentally during a struggle, then perhaps the charges could be reduced to manslaughter, or at least give him a shot at claiming self-defence. Clegg knew, really, he wouldn't get the case thrown out, but he could perhaps put a hole below the waterline of the Crown's case before it even got to trial. Clegg must have felt he had a shot, especially as Mrs. Catherine Dyson was such a poor quality witness. If he could show that she was a liar and the two men were in an equal physical struggle caused by an affair, then perhaps the case would collapse. Plus, Clegg had been given a gift by the press. They had already declared Peace to be the guilty Bannercross killer. After the district where the murder had happened, Clegg naturally complained that the press conduct was prejudicial to any fair trial. His client was the victim of the press, a man who had fallen in love and had got into a struggle with the outraged husband. I haven't got the full trial record, which wouldn't have been verbatim anyway, and this was only a preliminary hearing, and Victorian trial records were summaries of events, not full transcripts. So I'm just speculating here, but I think Clegg would have argued that his client then fled the police in fear that he wouldn't be believed, and the press coverage was clear proof that he was being prejudiced based on his admittedly bad record. Still, the judge found there was sufficient evidence to refer Peace to trial at the Crown Court. At the Crown Court trial, Peace was represented by Mr Frank Lockwood. The prosecution opened their case with Mrs Dyson. They had sent an officer all the way to the United States of America to bring her back to testify. She was keen to do so, adamant that Peace was an evil man who had stalked her without encouragement. She and her husband had attempted to get rid of Peace lawfully, but it hadn't worked. On the fateful night, she had screamed and her husband had appeared. 
then tried to grab peace, but hadn't managed, so there was no struggle, and therefore peace had killed him in cold blood. At least, according to her testimony, she was the only eyewitness. Lockwood laid into her. He pointed out she had been given a ring by peace, which she had worn. She had been out drinking with her man, matching Peace's description, which she at first denied, and then backtracked. She had written letters to him. She denied this. Lockwood found a witness, a young girl who would testify. She carried notes between them. Mrs. Dyson was adamant they were just receipts for repair work that Peace had done for her. Lockwood even produced a photograph of her and Peace at a fair together. She promptly denied it and then lied about the date. An eyewitness was found who had heard Peace making threats about Dyson days before. Lockwood could have argued that this didn't prove intent to murder on the night in question. It could have been no more than angry words, not intended to link to an act. There was a debate about whether any letters could be read, and Lockwood fought his client's corner like a tiger. Despite Peace's moaning, he actually had a very good barrister. Peace was already serving a life sentence for the attempted murder, but perhaps he could be kept from going to the gallows. The prosecution produced evidence that the bullet pattern matched the rifling in the barrel of the revolver that Peace carried, but strictly speaking, that was actually irrelevant. Peace admitted carrying the revolver and firing the shot. The defences were either manslaughter, self-defence, or in the alternative, an accidental discharge of the fatal shot. The real problem that Lockwood had was the one the judge identified in summing up, namely that the testimony from Mrs. Dyson wasn't the only evidence. When taken together, the evidence of the eyewitnesses about Peace's threats, his loitering at the scene, and the unlikely chance of a revolver accidentally firing in a struggle and hitting the victim in a temple. The jury had even been given the revolver to examine and see if they felt it could be easily discharged. Nor was there any medical evidence of a struggle. There were bruises on the victim's face, but the medical expert testified that they were the result of the fall after the victim was shot, not caused by a blow during a struggle, despite Lockwood's pressing. The best Lockwood could submit was that the only witness to the shooting had probably lied about having an affair, but that was thin. Any reasonable doubt would have required him to find a way round the witness evidence, the stalking, the going to the scene armed. Above all, there was the sheer improbability of two men who hated each other getting into a struggle in the middle of the night and one of them being first shot at, then accidentally shot dead moments later by a man who had attempted to kill a police officer and made an escape attempt whilst being brought to trial. Still, Lockwood went for it in his closing argument. He criticised the press for prejudicing people against his client. He suggested that Catherine 
and the victim had had a stormy, perhaps violent marriage, and she had then had an affair with the notorious and exciting Peace. It had been discovered by her husband, who warned Peace off. When that failed, there was a confrontation, a confrontation that the liar Catherine Dyson was pretending never happened, so she could settle the score with Peace. His client was armed habitually, and there was a struggle during which the revolver unfortunately went off, killing Arthur Dyson. Lockwood argued it was clear from the angles of the bullets that Peace had been retreating and trying to fire wide. He argued that the doctor was wrong to claim the bruising and scratches on the victim's jaw were post-mortem. Rather, they were clear evidence of the struggle. Lockwood had been dealt a really bad hand by his client, but he had given it a good shot. If I had to be on trial for a serious crime, I'd actually be pretty happy with Lockwood in my corner. The jury didn't buy Lockwood's arguments and took ten minutes to return a guilty verdict. He wrote to his family and they visited him in prison. He repeated his confession of the Constable Cock murder. William Habron was freed, as we talked about last episode. Justice had actually triumphed, but honestly, it wasn't due to brilliant detective work, or advances in forensics, or new technology. It was pure luck that Peace had decided to make a gallows confession. Peace was eventually executed. He was lucky, if you can use that word, in that it would be a private execution in the prison, rather than the public execution in front of a jeering crowd, as those had been abolished. He would also get the more merciful long-drop style of hanging, rather than the much nastier short-drop method the early Victorian period. Nor would his death pass unnoticed. The press would rejoice. A notorious killer executed would sell a lot of papers. Police officers might nod solemnly at the thought of duty done, justice served, and a fallen brother avenged. For the public, it could be capital entertainment, or a job well done, just a paragraph in a newspaper that didn't interest them, or maybe a sign of the shocking barbarity of a legal system that killed people, depending on their political point of view. Mrs. Dyson might finally have been able to sigh with relief. The man who had stalked her, tormented her, and murdered her husband, was finally gone. She was safe. Susan might have reflected that she was lucky to have ratted peace out early on, and avoided problems for herself. For Conan Doyle, other authors, or true crime affectionados, peace was a fascinating character, to be used as needed. Indeed, I've only given you some of the highlights of his career. You can dig in and spend hours and write books about him. He attracts a lot of myths and legends and anecdotes, so there's plenty of exaggeration in there, as well as real history. For the prison staff and chaplain, he was an unpleasant job. Another prisoner to manage. Another soul that might be damned or saved. This wouldn't be the age of Victoria, though if we didn't at least pause to think about the last group of people who might have felt something else, the other prisoners, 
in jail with peace, as he awaited his execution. Perhaps a few of them would also have been waiting for the gallows, but most would have been ordinary people, serving time in the harsh world of the Victorian prison, breaking rocks or unpicking rope or working the giant treadmills. But for all of them, the prison was hard, damp, small, and became their entire world. They were helpless, the lowest of the low, in an age that didn't spare the weak or the helpless. To watch a prisoner be executed was a slap in the face, reminding them of just how low they had fallen in the world. The pain resonated. Oscar Wilde wrote a powerful poem called The Ballad of Reading Jail about the effect an execution had on the inmates. It was inspired by his own time in prison. From the point of view of the inmates, viewing the condemned man. It is a long poem, and pretty haunting. It also really conveys how imprisonment itself felt. You almost feel confined in the dark, with just that tiny slice of sky from the narrow window or exercise yard. I will give you a short bit of the poem, but do please go and look it up. It's well worth a read. I'll try and put a version up on the website soon. He did not wear his scarlet coat, for blood and wine are red, and blood and wine were on his hands when they found him with the dead, the poor dead woman whom he loved and murdered in her bed. He walked among the trial men in a suit shabby grey. A cricket cap was on his head, and his step seemed light and gay, but I never saw a man who looked so wistful at the day. I never saw a man who looked with such a wistful eye upon that little tent of blue which prisoners called sky, and at every drifting cloud that went with sails of silver by. I watched other souls in pain within another ring, and was wondering if the man had done a great or little thing, when a voice behind me whispered low, that fellow's got to swing. Dear Christ, the very prison walls suddenly seemed to reel, and the sky above my head became like a, a cask of scorching steel, and though I was a soul in pain, my pain I could not feel. I only knew what haunted thought quickened his step, and why he looked upon the garish day with such a wistful eye. The man had killed the thing he loved, and so he had to die. Charles' peace had gone, and people had to move on. He was notorious, but ultimately he was a criminal like many others. Millions of Victorians only knew his name from the papers or gossip. The world outside the prisons moved on, and so must we. The anniversary specials are over, and next time we will begin our coverage of UK politics in the 1820s and 1830s, as the establishment did their best to try and stop the world changing around them. They stood facing the enormous winds of change and the imminent prospect of Victoria becoming Queen. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to give me some feedback or just have a chat or ask any questions, you can email me at Podcast 
at gmail.com or on Facebook, on the Facebook page or in the group. Just search for Age of Victoria. If you want more of an informal social chat or a bit of banter, follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Take care and bye for now.